Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Matthew 16. So I told you we were going to take a break from Matthew. But we're actually staying in Matthew. Uh, We're quickly approaching what many call Passion Week. If you're not familiar, Passion Week, or also, also known as Holy Week, it's the week of Jesus in Jerusalem, the week, the last week of his life, uh, the week of his death, the week of his burial and resurrection. And so, starting next Sunday, we'll be observing and celebrating this final week of Christ's life. It, Next Sunday, we'll have a Palm Sunday service at our normal time. That's on the 10th. And then on Friday, Good Friday, we will have a service at 6.30 as we focus on the crucifixion of Christ that evening. And then, of course, Sunday, uh, we'll have our Easter service on the 17th normal time. So today, we're going to begin preparing for that week Um, we're going to use today to adjust our focus. Uh, We're going to look at Matthew 16, uh, this portion that we've read. I can't hit everything in it, and I don't want to hit everything in it. Uh, It is such a... It's such a rich section of the Gospel of Matthew, and when we get to it later as we continue in uh, progressively through Matthew, we'll get to spend some more time on it. Uh, but today, uh, I want us to see three headings, three sections in this, in this passage. And within these three sections, there are three pieces of divine information I desperately want you to have. And so these three sections look like this. Number one, the identity of Jesus. Number two, the work of Jesus. And number three, the follower of Jesus. The identity of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and the follower of Jesus. And outside of those, or I should say inside of those, the divine information, the divine knowledge that Jesus wants you to know is, number one, who He is. Number two, what He has done. And number three, probably the most difficult of them all, what it cost to follow Him. Uh, Eternity is in the balance with these three things. I just want us to understand. I want us to understand this. But I also, again, want this to be a time for us to focus as we move into Passion Week. Uh, So, let me say a prayer before we... Dive in. Spirit of God, we lean upon you for all wisdom and understanding. We lean upon you. We depend upon you for you to reveal divine, heavenly, eternal things to us. May you be present and may the power of your word have divine effect on all of those who hear. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so number one, 
the identity of Jesus in our first few verses, in verses 13 through 20. Jesus wants you to know who He is. Probably something we're all familiar with. So the last time I, I was up here and preached, it was in Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, which we have finished. That was the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And now we're fast-forwarding. I don't know the exact time frame, but it's definitely in the latter half of Jesus' ministry, which, you know, took about three years, give or take. So he's been teaching. He's been proclaiming. He's had uh, countless uh, intimate sessions with the Twelve. And in this section, at this point in time, Jesus asked this question, and he asked it in verse 13. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that I am? Now, we've got to understand, Jesus isn't concerned about his brand. It's not, this isn't him testing the market to see how effective his preaching has been. He has an agenda in asking this question. Uh, he asked this question not because he's concerned about what people think about him. Uh, Jesus knows exactly what people think about him. He asked this question in a way of setting up and leading into the real question that he wants to ask his disciples. They, they give him an answer, and you see in verse 14 they say, Back to him. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, I want you to pick up here that what they say is wrong. What they say is wrong. But then Jesus then turns to his true question. That he wants to ask, and he, he here's what here's paraphrase. So for the last certain amount of months, maybe years, you have heard me preach. You have heard me proclaim. You've also heard now what the world says. Now I want to know what you say. You tell me who I am. He asked in verse 15. He said to them. But who do you say that I am? This question is the question above all questions. You know, we hear all kinds of questions throughout our life that really guide us in how in, in their life-altering questions. So here's some that you might hear throughout your life that the answer to the questions are very important. What do you want to be when you grow up, kids? It's a real important question. Or as you grow older, where are you going to go to school? Have you picked out a college? And then you get a little bit older. Someone asks you, is she the one? Or then it, the other side of it might say, are you going to say yes? These are life-altering questions. Or how about where are we going to raise our kids? Am I going to take that job? And so on and so forth. All the answers to these questions are extremely important. They're huge. But none of them more important than the question Jesus has asked the disciples. 
And in turn, He is asking you as well. He's asking you this morning, what or who do you say that I am? And you get this question, if you get this question wrong, if you get this answer wrong, I don't care what you want to be when you grow up. I don't care where you go to college. I don't care who you marry. None of that matters. If you get this one question wrong, who is Jesus? So, Peter gives an answer. He gives the only answer, the right answer. Look at verse 16. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter gives two descriptions of Jesus' identity, the Christ and the Son of the living God. Now, I, we could spend weeks on those two descriptions, but we can't. So here's what, Je- here's what Peter was proclaiming. You, Jesus, you are the promised one of God. You are the one God promised to Eve. Her offspring that would crush the head of the serpent, Satan. You are the promised one to Abraham, through whom the whole world would be blessed. You are the promised one to David, the one who would reign forever over the kingdom of God. You are the promised one through the prophets that would wash away sin, make us white and pure as snow. You are God, Emmanuel, come to save us from our sins. Now that in a nutshell is what Peter is saying. Peter understood that the man before him was no ordinary man. He understood that he was more than a prophet. He understood that he was more than a man of God. He is God. Peter stood before God that day. And as Peter would say in John 6, I have nowhere else to go, Jesus, because you and you alone have the words of eternal life. You are the Christ, the chosen one, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Son of God. So do you know that today? Here, if you hear my voice, I need you to know, or at least comprehend, to consider, do you know who Jesus is? Can you stand confidently next to Peter and confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? And I don't mean it as if you can know and confess that 2 plus 2 is 4. That's not what I mean. I mean, do you know it down in your bones? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Does the knowledge of who Jesus is cause your heart to pump and the blood in your veins to course through? Your understanding of Jesus, does it truly give you meaning for your life? Because this is what Peter was confessing. Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if you don't know Jesus, then... What do you do? You ask Him to show Himself to you. If you do not know who Christ is, cry out to Him and say, 
reveal your true self to me. As Moses cried out to God, show me your glory. If you want to know who Christ is, cry out to Jesus now, today. Show me your beauty, your majesty. Show me yourself that I might know you. Because apart from knowing Christ, you do not have eternal life. As Jesus would say, this is eternal life, that you know the one true God in Jesus Christ whom He has sent. But, I, you know, i got to warn you, as Jesus asked the question, starting with what did they, who did they say I am, I don't want you to get caught up in what everyone else is saying about Jesus. Now, you spend one maybe two hours a week in this building. I hope you spend more time in the Word as you, when you're not in this building. But the majority of your life, you are surrounded by the world. And the world is ready to attack and to tell you what they think of Jesus. And at best... They'll tell you he's a good man. But I'll tell you what they're saying nowadays, louder than ever. He's a myth. That's what the world is telling you. All day, every day. You turn on the TV, the radio, you talk to your friends, might even your family. And they might not be saying it in, uh, directly. Some of them, uh, a lot of them are. <coughs> But even in their lives are telling you that Jesus to them is nothing but a mist. A myth. Do not listen to what they say. But hear the words of Jesus and hear who He says He is. Hebrews 4 says, Since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. If you have confessed, as Peter did, that Jesus is the Christ, I need you to hold fast. As you live in this world, as you wake up tomorrow, I need you to hold fast to the words of Jesus and do not let go of your confession. We've got to keep moving on, but before we do, I want to make this point if you can truly make the confession before men that Jesus is the Christ I want you to understand the grace of God is upon you and the spirit of God is in you look what Jesus says to Peter in verse 17 and Jesus answered him blessed are you could you imagine Jesus blessing you? I can't, I don't even want to try to describe it. That Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God would bless you. And He blessed Peter when Peter made that great confession. And for all who have and will Confess that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He blesses you. His grace is upon you. 
to make the good confession that Jesus is the Christ is to have God Himself reveal to you such divine truth. Look what He says. Blessed are you, son, uh, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The world cannot give you such knowledge. They cannot reveal to you the things of God. Yes, they can be an instrument of God to deliver the truth of Christ, but it is God alone who opens the eyes of the spiritually blind. It is God alone who raises the spiritual dead. To make the confession is to be saturated and covered with the love and grace of God. Now, let's go ahead and and go on. Second section, second heading. So the first was the identity of Jesus. Jesus wants you to know who He is. The second heading is the work of Christ. Jesus wants you to know what He has done. Verse 21, but before we go on to verse 21, let's just read the rest of the conversation between Peter and Jesus because it's going to help us a little bit. Verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So you got to imagine Peter's feeling pretty good right now. He's just confessed the great confession that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus Himself has blessed him. Jesus has told him that He's going to build His church. And Peter is going to be uh, very much involved in it. And he says that this church, nothing is going to stop it. So you know Peter's on cloud nine right now. But in verse 21... The mood is going to change. Uh, Especially in Peter's eyes, the mood is about to change. And probably all who heard and were in this scene, as hyped up as you would assume everyone was, including Peter, Jesus' next words probably brought a huge halt to the excitement. I would imagine Imagine the words felt very morbid to Peter and the disciples. Look what Jesus says in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So, why is Jesus being a killjoy? Right? Why so negative? Suffer? Die? Peter's thinking, I just told you, you're the son of the living God. Let's, let's just set up this shop right now. 
We don't need this negativity. We don't have to suffer. We don't have to die. Let's do some miraculous stuff. Get rid of Rome, the Pharisees. Let's let the meek inherit the earth right now. Nobody's got to die. At least nobody on our side, right? But there's one word in this section that's so important. One word. Look back at 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, must. This is the most important word in this sentence. Jesus had one plan, one goal, one destination. He was marching to Jerusalem. He had to let the elders the chief priest and the scribes arrest him. He must let them falsely accuse him. He must let them charge him with blasphemy. He must let them turn him over to Pilate so that he might suffer and die. He must. When God told Eve, that her offspring would be crushed, the offspring would crush the head of the serpent. What did he tell her would have to happen to the offspring? It would bruise his heel. When God told Abraham to, to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, and as Abraham raised the blade, what did God do? He provided a sacrifice. One to die in Isaac's place. You see, the scriptures have been telling us from Genesis all the way to Jesus' time that the chosen one must suffer and die. When God spoke through Isaiah about the Christ to come, He spoke about a suffering servant. A suffering servant. Turn to Isaiah 53 with me. Starting in verse 3. Pay close attention. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Verse 4. Or I'm sorry, verse 3. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. For surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgression, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Now, just hear me, I've just got to go through this faster. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, he was slaughtered, he was oppressed, and judgment was taken from him. He was cut off, he was stricken. 
He was laid in the grave. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Jesus was constrained to go to Jerusalem. He was meant to go to Jerusalem. So he tells his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem. It was the will of God the Father, He and the Son. And we know that Christ did not come to do His own will, but the will of His Father. And it was the will of His Father to crush Him for you. The death of the Christ, the death of the Son of of God was the only way to accomplish the purpose of God. And we know this. No other way but the death of Christ, the shedding of perfect, righteous, innocent blood. And we haven't even mentioned the suffering of His life up until this point. Christ suffered daily for your sake. Isaiah called Him the man of sorrows. Where did his suffering come from? It came from his pursuit of righteousness. Jesus' suffering came from his pursuit of righteousness. It came because he did not sin. You would think that would be the opposite, right? Someone who lives a good life can avoid the bad things. For us, as saints and followers of Christ... You live in a world, a fallen world as we do. If you seek to pursue righteousness and not sin, you will suffer. More on this to come. Jesus, when he denied the flesh, he suffered. When he stood for the truth, he suffered. He brought on mockery and hatred. When he sought to be perfect, perfectly obedient to the Father, he suffered. Hebrews says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. What does that mean? It means he suffered through life, obtaining the righteousness that you needed to get into heaven. The suffering of Christ was absolutely necessary for our salvation. His death was without question necessary for you to be forgiven and justified before a holy God. This is the work of the Son, the Son of the living God. But of course, what does he say at the end of verse 21? For some reason, Peter didn't pick up on this. He's to be killed. And on the third day, what? Raised. Now we don't, we don't have time to hang out here in these verses. We've got to move on to section three. But don't be so quick to condemn Peter. Don't, don't, don't be pointing your finger at Peter saying, Peter, can't you hear? Christians act like this on a daily basis. 
The only difference is that we haven't done it in the physical presence of Jesus. And our mess-ups aren't written down in Scripture for all to read. Think about what just happened in verse 13 through 20. Peter is on fire. To be blessed by God would bring what to you? Thanksgiving and gratitude. And to be thankful and have gratitude, what would you want to do? You would want to stand before you would want to stand before the Lord, worship him and serve him. And so if you hear something that something might happen to him or that he might be humbled or lowered from who he really is, what do you think your response is? No, I'm going to stand in for the Lord. And that's what he was doing. But he didn't listen to the Lord. You and I and the church abroad, especially in America, we want to stand in for the Lord. And when we do it because we want the world to hear or we want to defend God, and what do we do? We forget what He said. We don't pay attention to His words. We're like, I'll take care of you, Jesus, but I'm going to do it my way. We can't do that. We can't do that. His boldness, His zeal, His intentions seemed good, but He was wrong because He did not listen to the words of Jesus. Pay attention to the words of Jesus more than anything else in this world. Peter was listening, right? He just missed three words. How many are we missing? How many of the words of Christ are we missing? Pay attention to what He has said. Be the wise man that hears the word of Jesus and does them. Jesus' words are the power of God, and we neglect them. Jesus' words are the lamp to our feet and the light to our path, and what do we do? We wander away from them. We find ourselves in the darkness. And when you find yourself in the darkness, you're in the devil's playground. And that's why he says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Hear the words of Jesus. Seek the words of Jesus. By the, by the grace of God, Peter would eventually figure it out, though. Uh, for the sake of time, I'm not going to do it. But go and read Peter this week, First Peter. And you see him uh, make up for all of his blunders. And what he says in 1 Peter, he acknowledges the need and necessity of the suffering of Christ. Now we have the, the final section, the follower of Jesus. This section starts in verse 24. So what does Jesus want us to know in this section? Jesus wants you to know 
what it costs to follow him. At this point in our passage, Jesus has made it known and clear he's going to Jerusalem. He's headed to his death. You and I know that his death will take place where? Upon a cross, right? It was the, the form of execution of that time, the cross. Invented for the sake of a slow, agonizing death. They knew, the Son knew, the Father knew that the cross was the place the Son would die. Now look at verse 24. Jesus said to His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, we'll stop there. He told His disciples, Jesus had not created or invented the idea of disciples. It was a common practice of that time. Uh, It was a common practice before Jesus' time. The Greeks, the Romans, and the Jews, they had discipler-disciplee relationships. Uh, Rabbis of the Jews, smart fellas, teachers of the law, would gain followers or disciplers, disciples, learners, They would want to learn what the rabbi knows. They would want to learn what the teacher knows. They would want to not just learn from him, but be like him. And oftentimes that means they would leave their home and live with him, follow him wherever he goes. They would literally uproot their lives to uh, engross themselves with their teacher. Jesus in verse 24, he's acknowledging to those who are wanting to be his disciples, who are wanting to be like him, who are wanting to learn from him. He says, if anyone would come after me, where is he going? He is going to Jerusalem. He is going to death. And he says, if you're going to be my disciples, get behind me. Follow me. It's time to go. Who's coming? Jesus is really up front and doesn't want to hide anything from them. So anytime you go on a trip, you want to know what it's going to cost, right? What's it going to cost to follow Jesus? To be a true disciple of Jesus, what does it cost? Now, that might be confusing to you. Because you've heard me over and over and over and over again say, uh, the gift of eternal life is free. It costs us nothing. That is absolutely correct. So why are we talking about a cost? The payment of your sin is a cost you could never pay. The payment, the debt that Jesus paid upon the cross was infinite. And it's something you and I could never bear Therefore, He took it for us. But Jesus is very clear that if you're going to follow Him, if you're going to learn from Him, if you're going to be like Him, there is a great cost to you. I want everyone to hear this and hear this clearly. If you are unwilling to count the cost And to lay it on the table for Christ. He says, 
you are not worthy to be his disciple. Being a Christian is more than just acknowledging the first two things that we have looked at. The identity and work of Jesus. Being a Christian is knowing and entrusting to the person and work of Jesus so much that you are willing to lose it all for him. So let's read the rest of this section, or at least up until 26. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits, him soul, forfeits his soul? So let's move through this quickly. If anyone would come after me, here's the cost, he says. Number one, let him deny himself. You know the biggest problem in our world today? Ourselves. It's ourselves. The reason mankind fails to glorify God, fails to obey His Word, fails to love one another, is because of the selfishness of man. Our concerns with ourselves cause us to fall short of the glory of God. It began in the garden. Right? I want you to understand, as Eve looked upon the tree, do you know what she was thinking about? Herself. This is what she said. She said, That the tree was good for food. For who? For her. That it was a delight to her eyes. And that the tree was desired to make her wise. Her focus was on me. I don't want to point at the woman the whole time. Adam, what did he? He was concerned about himself too, because he didn't want to tell his wife no. Your sin is situated and founded on your concern for yourself. Your condemnation, your eternal condemnation is based on the fact that you think you're the best. And it causes us to fall short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2 describes it It as living by the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, And of our mind. Jesus says if you're going to be my disciple. You must deny self. And yes that is a command. That is an imperative command. If anyone would come after me. Let him deny himself. You cannot be. Truly saved from the pits of hell unless you are a disciple. And you cannot truly be a disciple if you are not willing to deny yourself. Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem. Are you following him? Are you walking behind the one who denied himself to the point of death in order that you could even consider denying yourself? For the sake of Him. He is showing you as you follow Him to Jerusalem. What it means to deny oneself. He is our example. uh, Men. When you're at home this week. 
the number one thing you should do within your household is love your wife the way Christ loved the church. How do you do that? Self-denial. He gave himself up for her. Jesus put the church above his life. And men, you should do the same for your wives. A true man is not one who makes everyone aware that they are the man and they are in charge. But a true man is the one who is determined to give his life for the sake of his family. And that's what any follower of Christ should do, man or woman. Be ready to sacrifice their own life for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the kingdom, and for the sake of His bride, His church. Look what, how he finishes 24. Not just deny self, but what? To take up His cross and follow. To take up the cross. I'm not talking about barren burdens. Don't, don't say that. Don't say that... Jesus talked about bearing burdens on, a, on the cross that, you know, I have to bear the burden of taking care of kids or I've got to bear the burden of dealing with my spouse or I've got to bear this burden. No. When the disciples heard Jesus say, take up your cross, do you know what flashed through their minds? Death. That's all they knew about a cross. Death. They had seen numerous, numerous of people hung on a cross, executed by Rome. We have no reason to think that they thought of anything else other than death. Jesus said to them, if anyone is going to come after me, let him deny himself and get ready to die. Because they wouldn't have thought about it any other way. Cross equals execution. Verse 25. For whoever would save his life. See, this kind of just emphasizes how they would have interpreted it. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I'm pretty sure, confident, that within this next week, none of you, or I will have to consider giving up our physical lives for the sake of Christ. Pretty confident about that. But would you? Would you? Would you be ready to give your life to never see your family again, to never see another sunset, to never, to never taste your favorite food to never kiss your spouse, to never tuck in your little ones for the sake of Jesus. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's Jesus in Matthew 10. Peter figured it out. 
And like I said, he said in 1 Peter chapter 2, this is what he says, I wrote it down. When he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting in himself to him who judged justly. He, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He died in self-denial so that you could live in self-denial. And we can't say, Jesus, I accept you. But I really like this life. By his wounds, you have been healed. He's given up everything for our sake. And he deserves no less for his sake. And while you might not have to give up yourself to the point of physical death. Right now, today, when you go home, you must die to self. You must. You must die to self so that you can follow Jesus. If you're going to go home and be a parent, a spouse, if you're going to go to work tomorrow and be a co-worker, and you're not willing to die for self, and fo- you cannot follow Christ in those areas of life if you're not willing to deny yourself and pick up your cross. The, the two greatest commandments are built on what? Love. Try loving focused on yourself. We cannot love God and love others if we are loving ourselves. If we're seeking ourselves. Your battle with temptation, you might have a sin that you're tempted with. It's always going to end poorly if you're not willing to deny yourself. Gossip, slander, covetousness, lust, hate, all these are driven by our self ish passions our selfish desires you can only stand against sin and temptation when you follow Christ in self denial ready to die so I'm just going to end for the sake of time because we're gone over I want you to understand something it starts with knowing him you have to You have to know who Jesus is. And you have to know what He has done. And you have to be willing to say, He did it for me. Because if you're not willing to say that He did it for me, then you are left out in the cold just saying, that's a man over there named Jesus. You must entrust your soul to the One who gave His life for the sake of your sin, that you might not endure the wrath of God. You must cry out for forgiveness and repent of your sins. Entrust yourself to Christ, beloved. Entrust. You trust. How much stuff do you trust in this world? Entrust your soul to Jesus, your life. And when your life is entrusted into Christ, guess what? He says you will die the death with Him. 
but you will also be raised with him as well into this newness of life. And you would be living as an instrument of righteousness. I want to conclude with this quote and then a passage of Scripture. Uh, Thomas Brooks, a Puritan pastor and author, said this about the dangers of self-seeking. Self-seeking blinds the soul that it cannot see the beauties of Christ or the excellencies of holiness. It ruins the palate so that a man cannot taste the sweetness of the words of God, nor the sweetness of his ways, nor the sweetness of the community within his people. Self-seeking shuts the hand against all the soul-enriching offers of Christ. It hardens the heart to all the knocks and appeals of Christ. Self-seeking makes the soul as an empty vine and a barren and as a barren wilderness. There is nothing that makes a man to be more empty, void of God, void of Christ, void of grace than self-seeking. Jesus Christ set aside his self, died so that you might follow his pattern, that you and I might set our face towards Jerusalem and be ready to suffer and die for his sake. Hebrews says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Run to your cross. And as you do that, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray.